this uh, third week of Advent. We've been, hopefully you've been getting the theme here pretty loud and clear. It's joy. And um, as I was thinking about joy this week, I was reminded how joy is, uh, can be a challenge at times. Joy can be hard to find. Some people are just more naturally joyous than others. You know those people. Sometimes they grate on you sometimes, right? They're just like over the top with joy and everything is joyful. But for the most part, um, joy is actually a, a choice that we have to make. Joy is something that we have to deliberately enter into. And that's part of the reason why we have Advent even is just to remind us of that. And in scriptures, uh, throughout the scriptures, we're actually told that that joy is the result of believers understanding the salvation that they have in Christ. That's when we see joy on the other side of that, when people kind of think about that. And it's something that is actually a work. It's, it's an effort that is done. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, I am working with you for your joy. So Paul says for his ministry, what he was doing there in Corinth as they were wrestling over truth as a church, that, that effort, that work was going to result itself in experiencing joy. And so when we come to our story here this morning to Matthew chapter 2, and uh, Liz just read it out there, you can see that um, joy isn't actually mentioned in there. Okay, joy might, it might have been better to use Luke chapter 2. If you see, next week, actually, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. At least the word joy shows up in that text. Okay, so did I choose the wrong one? No, underneath this story here, underneath all that's happening is this deliberate effort of God's people and a deliberate effort, the work of God to um, experience the joy of God and the joy of God on a personal level, but also on a global level. Okay, so we want to see as we look at the text here this morning that what God is doing is working out his purposes um, through history, but then also through Jesus to bring the joy of Jesus to the whole world. So in Matthew chapter 2, um, the story's been building, and if you look at chapter 1, it's, it's mostly um, genealogies, the lists of names of all this connection, and, and Matthew, the author, is taking effort to build the story, and his focus really in, in this gospel is on uh, Joseph and Joseph's experience. And so he's showing Joseph kind of come onto the scene. And um, many, most of us probably know the story well that Joseph is uh, reluctant, right? He finds out that Mary is pregnant and he knows that he is not the father. And so he is confused. And yet he's a man of respect and honor. And so he wants to end the marriage quietly so that Mary and her family are not um, disrespected in the community. But an angel comes to him and says, Joseph, you are going to be the father of this baby. And this baby has come through the Holy Spirit. This is a miraculous event that has happened. And so don't end the marriage. Keep moving forward with this. This is all in God's plans. And then we come to chapter 2 where we are. And we begin to see that the baby is born and Jesus is there and... Um, the wise men come onto the scene, and we're going to look at the wise men in just a minute. But we also see that right from the beginning, there is opposition to Jesus. This is going to be a theme that is throughout Jesus's life, that there is opposition against him as 
his ministry goes forward and as uh, things become clear in terms of who he is and who he claims to be. And so right from the beginning here, we see in verses 3 through 8, the opposition that Jesus as a baby begins to experience. You think of like, who would, who would be against a beautiful little baby, right? That's the most innocent little thing. And you're like, okay, even if he wasn't the Savior, this is a baby. It's just a glorious moment, you know, just hold the baby. But no, Herod and evil behind Herod actually knows what this is and what this means. For Herod, it's an attack on his power. But for Satan and evil powers, it is actually God uh, fulfilling his promises. And we don't maybe often think about this with the Christmas story, but this text reminds us here this morning that there is more going on than just the actors that are on the stage here. That Satan has always been against what God is doing. There's always been evil forces at work that have been trying to um, destroy God's plans. And, and Ephesians 6 reminds us that there is a spiritual battle that's actually going on. Ephesians 6.12 says this, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we look out at the world and we see just like regular life around us, but really behind the scenes what's going on is there's actually like a spiritual battle that's happening. And it comes to fruition right when Jesus is born. And we live today in a very uh, scientific kind of natural world and, and we like, you know, things that we can see and hold on to. Um, and so we've lost kind of this, this spiritual sense of what's going on around us. And um, Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian philosopher, he, he says that we have been disenchanted, meaning that we've kind of lost this understanding of this spiritual realm that's going on around us. And um, a couple years ago, I read this book called Recapturing the Wonder by Mike Cosper, and he kind of goes on to describe that idea of how we've lost this, um, this sense of the spiritual world around us. He says this in his book, A disenchanted world has been drained of magic, of any supernatural presence, of spirits, of God and transcendence. A disenchanted world is a material world where what you see is what you get, which would bring true for, I mean, our society, the very scientific base. And so people are like, what I can measure, what I can use the tools of science to, to kind of pinpoint, give it some accuracy, kind of master it. That is all that matters. But Mike Cosper goes on to say this, the universe revealed itself to be more vast, more hostile, more empty than we'd previously imagined. Technology has given us a sense that everything within the universe can be made to appear in our senses and harnessed for our purposes. It may be meaningless, but it can be comprehended and mastered. This mastery, though, is a bit of an illusion as well. The accumulated body of scientific knowledge can tell us about the canvas, oils, minerals, that combine to make the world a world of art, but they cannot tell us why it takes our breath away. So there's a deeper understanding that 
the scriptures actually give us of what's going on in the world around us. There's more than just this physical world. There's actually a spiritual reality and it's being played out on the stage of the Christmas story right here in chapter 2. So the biblical vision shows us that there are actually spiritual kingdoms at work and they uh, are manifest in practical, real-life ways. Like They look like um, policy, they look like culture, they look like choices that people make. This is actually what this... Um, opposition these kingdoms battling actually looks like and so the teaching is clear in scripture that this is not some sort of um, like we live in a day now a day and age of uh, conspiracy theories and kind of like every some people are like totally on the edge of like every little bad thing that happens to them you know like like I didn't sleep good last night just it was probably like the food I had yesterday but it was some sort of like demonic activity right that didn't allow me to sleep good and on the other hand, we've got people on the other side who are like, there is no spiritual world at all. The scriptures actually give us this middle realm that says the world is going on. Jesus arrived into a real place, into a culture. But behind that, there's actually these forces of opposition to what God is doing and what God wants to do. And it's something that we need to be aware of because... Paul says also that the eyes of unbelievers, their eyes are veiled. Their eyes are veiled. They can't see this. They, they read texts like this and they'd either pass right over it or they would say this is like a fable or this is just like fairy tales. And we see this and we see Herod is actually making choices as an individual, but he's actually led by a greater force that's behind him, right? That's kind of pushing him along. That is in opposition to what God is doing, and obviously to the birth of Christ here. It ends up culminating in verses, if you see verses 16 through 18, I didn't include them on the slide, but it ends up being that Herod takes this right to the degree where all the little boys in Bethlehem are killed, right? The, this little massacre that happens where his policy ends up killing these children with the hopes that Jesus would be one of them, with the hopes that the Messiah would somehow be destroyed in the process. At the heart of this, though, get this, okay, because this is really important. At the heart of this is not for believers or individuals to, to point at legal systems or to point at elements of culture and say those things are just evil that's driving all the problems in this world. The deepest problem actually is in the heart of every human being. The opposition to Christ starts in the heart of every single person that is actually driven by their own ambitions. Um, I'm reading uh, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller right now, and he kind of states right early on that the kind of the core of most marital problems, okay, you want to talk about opposition, just get married, okay, and then you'll see that, that the opposition actually happens really quickly with the one that you most love, and he says, that opposition actually begins at the heart level. So he writes, at the core of the human heart is an impulse to say, no one tells me what to do. That is actually at the, the core of it. And when it comes to marriage, when it comes to um, friendship relationships even, um, when it comes to people that are close to us, maybe family, this 
very principle applies. And so the opposition that we see here, Jesus facing, yes, is on a government level, but it actually all boils down to a heart level. So into this world of opposition, baby Jesus is born. He comes onto the scene. And the interesting thing that we see here is that God continues to work out his purposes. So even though Jesus is opposed, Jesus continues to work around him. And even in the world that we are living in, there is opposition to Christianity. There is growing uh, resistance to the message of the gospel. But guess what? God still works around us. Look at the, I just included some short excerpts here from the text to show us where God actually works. So in verse 2, it says that the, Wise men are telling of what happened, and they said, we saw his star. So we know this part of the story, this miraculous star shows up and leads these wise men. Then in verse 10, it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So again, the star is leading them. And then in verse 12, at the end of the story, it says, and being warned in a dream. So they're not to go back to Herod, and and God warns them in a dream. Here you have these wise men who are not even believers, they're not Jews, yet God is leading them so that his purposes can be accomplished. And it got me thinking this week about how God wants to continue to lead each and every one of us. You realize that? That God wants to lead you and me to do his purposes, to accomplish his will for our lives in every area. And so how do we awaken to what God is doing around us? How do we see with clearer vision? What is it that God wants to say? And I I just put on here four things that we can actually go to that help us determine what is God's will for my life and how am I to see that? Okay, we can see here on on the chart the the word, the word of God, his spirit, the community, God's people, and life. Okay, so just really quickly looking at these four things. The Word of God is the best way to to discover and to make clear what is God's will for my life. Hebrews starts off by saying this, long ago, this is in chapter 1, at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So Hebrews says that's how it was in in the ancient days. God would use prophets. They would say these words. They would say these things. Those were recorded. But now, verse 2 says, But in these days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So now God has clearly laid out for us what he says to us through his son, which is then captured for us in the word of God, right? John 1 tells us the word is Christ. Those things are the same. And so God speaks to us now through the word of God. And if you could give it like a percentage, okay, I'm just throwing a stat out here. You could probably argue with me on the stat, but I I would guess, I would say 95% of your life the will for your life from God is clearly laid out right here in the scriptures. For us to just make total sense of what is God's will for my life, probably 95%. I actually read a book this week and and the author said he thought it was 99%. Okay, so I'm like ratcheting it back a little bit because I'm like 99. 
That's pretty high. But okay, a vast majority of your life is actually made clear right here in the Word of God what you should be doing, what you should be a part of. So, for example, come Monday morning, tomorrow morning, you go to work, or maybe your commute is from the kitchen to your bedroom. I'm not sure what your commute is, okay? Or maybe you go to the job site or to a desk still. In that moment, maybe a thought comes to your mind, I don't feel like working this morning. I feel kind of tired. I know that I could find some other things to do and I'm either not going to work or I could take extra long breaks. Whatever it is that comes into your mind, um, you know what your boss would say. You know what your internal thoughts would say. You would know if you could get away with that or not. But that very moment, the Word of God actually speaks to it. It actually has words that should... Um, impact that very thought. Or maybe you're a parent and you're like, you know what? I don't feel like parenting anymore. I need a break. I've been doing this for X amount of years or maybe months and I'm just done disciplining, whatever it is. The Word of God actually speaks to that. Okay? And so if you think about just things like that, going to work, being with other people, That is like a large percentage of your and my life that the Word of God actually gives clarity to. And so understanding and knowing what the Scriptures say and how to apply them is a huge part of the believer's life. But in addition to that, we've got the second one, which is the Spirit. As believers, we get the Holy Spirit, who is this down payment of our eternal life with Christ, but He also gives us gifts that we are to use and and. I mean, many believers know what their gifts are. Some believers don't. There's, um, if you know the, the story, maybe you probably read the book or maybe you've seen the movie, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Probably lots of you have, have read those stories. Well, in that story, C.S. Lewis does a great job of kind of um, picturing this. And, and there's a time in the story where actually Father Christmas gives each of the kids a gift. And they don't know what that gift is for. But they are given a gift, and there's going to be an opportunity that, that they are going to actually have to use that at some point. And Father Christmas or, you know, the lion knows that they're going to need that at some point, and they're only going to discover that at the right moment. So as they go to war with the, with the white witch, um, you know, Lucy realizes that her gift of the healing ointment is needed right at the right time in the moment of battle. And Peter discovers that the sword he's been given has also been given to him right for a specific moment to to fight against the evil that is around him. And this is what it's like with the spiritual gifts that God gives to us in the moment, in, in the exact right moment. Sometimes, not even because we've realized it, but just because we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, the gift is there. And it's actually... Um, reminding us or it's showing us this is actually God's will for your life right here in this moment. That gift was given for you to be used in this way. So we discover the the will of God through our gifts. The third one really quickly is we discover it through the community around us, through God's people. So as we gather here, the local church is gathered, we get to know each other. We get to discover what gifts are good, or maybe we think we have certain gifts and we're like, "Mm, you know what, let me steer you in a different direction. Like God's people are good and helpful. And whenever it comes to decisions about 
what is the will of God in my life? And, and I've sat down with people and they've said, man, I'm trying to make this decision. I'm trying to figure this out. A good question to ask yourself is, have the people of God who are around me spoken into this decision? Because the people of God, the community that is around me, is a gift to us to make clear what is God's will when we can't make it clear on our own. So the word of God, the spirit, the community, and last of all is life around us, the circumstances of life. The fact that God is always at work around us. God does not uh, take a break. God does not go and take a coffee break and then come back and is like, whoa, what just happened? I wasn't aware of that. God is always at work around us. Look at Psalm 121, verses 1 through 4. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help come from, comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God is always at work around us. God does not take breaks. So the things that are happening, even these things here in the text, the, the difficulty that Jesus' family is experiencing, the, the way that God is leading the wise men. We heard here the story of how God appeared to the shepherds. This is God working around us in the world around us, helping to lead and to guide us and to help us find his will. Another verse that has maybe been kind of worn out on, on mugs and, and blankets and stuff, but it's still a, a, a true verse, okay, that, that bears deep truth. It's in Romans, it says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Everything God is doing around you, the, the good, the difficult, the confusing, he is working for you to discover what is your will, what is your place in his mission. And so the question isn't, man, has God made provision for us to uh, discover his will for us? The question maybe is more, are we aware and are we listening and have eyes open to what that will is? What is it that God is doing around us? And, and this story, we might think, because this story is so extraordinary, so unique, we might think this has to be our experience. There's got to be some sort of word. There's got to be some sort of um, fancy way. Maybe I'm looking for a star. Am I supposed to look for a star? Am I supposed to wait for a dream to tell me what to do? I love what Matthew Henry says in his commentary on Matthew. He says, extraordinary helps are not to be expected where ordinary means are to be had. There's so many regular ways that God is actually speaking to us. Remember, 95% according to me, 99% according to, you know, J.D. Greer in his book on the Holy Spirit. Whatever the percentage is, it is super high that we don't need to wait for a star. We don't need to wait for a dream. We don't need to wait for a special word, though um, God may use anything, right? God can and will use anything. But the ordinary means of discovering God's will for our lives are mostly plain for us to see and understand. The question is, are we aware that they're happening? And this is not just something for adults to be aware of. There's, you know, there's still a few teenagers in, in the audience here. Um, this is for all of you. This is for the young. This is for the old to be able to hear from God's word. In the story, Mary is most likely a teenager 
the shepherds, you know, many commentators will say they were most likely young boys who are familiar with uh, keeping sheep. This is who God is speaking to. He's speaking to anyone of any age uh, trying to accomplish his will and his purposes. So in the midst of this opposition that is happening, God is still leading people. He is still working his purposes. And we come here then to what is the point of all this? What is the point of all this leading that God is doing, all this bringing people along? His point is actually to see the message of Christ go out over the whole world. Look at verse 1. We just read these. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus... Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So these are men who were from far away. They were not Jewish people. They were not from the land of Israel. They, as far as we can tell, they weren't even necessarily familiar with the scriptures or all the prophetic words. They were astrologers. They studied the stars and Somehow God spoke to them and brought them to the place. And, and they didn't even know where to go. So they go to Jerusalem first and they go to the king there. And he tells them because the religious leaders knew exactly where to go. They knew where it would be, where the Messiah would come. And so he is, they are directed to Bethlehem. And then look what it says in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now it's interesting that Matthew would include this aspect of the story. Each of the Gospels is written to a different audience for different people. Okay, so, you know, Mark is written to uh, the Roman world, trying to explain to them uh, what this Jesus was like. Luke was written to the skeptic, and so he's really digging into all the background of it. John is written as this like first-hand personal account. And Matthew is reading, uh, writing to Jewish believers who really want to understand how is this Messiah, you know, connected to Judaism and the, and the background and all that. And so Matthew actually chooses to put in his story the wise men, these men from the East, these Gentiles, these non-Jews. But he does that with great intentionality. He begins his book with this reminder, this awareness that what God is doing is actually something he's always been doing. He has been after the whole world. And then he's going to end the book also with the Great Commission, which we're really familiar with, which is also this, this call for all of us to go out and share this message with the whole world. So not just Jerusalem not just the nation of Israel, not just the religious leaders, but a message for the whole world. It's bigger than just Israel. Psalm 96 is a, a great passage, um, just kind of reflecting on the, the nations of the world, God's vision for the nations of the world. And I just picked out a few verses of it to kind of help us see what God's vision was. It says in verse 3, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work works among all the peoples. Verse 7 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And verse 10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. 
He will judge the peoples with equity. So there's this promise of Christ's second coming where the whole world will, all the nations will come and glory in uh, God and bring praises to him. And this is the vision. And the religious leaders had totally lost sight of this, right? They were like, Messiah's here? I don't think so. We don't like that idea. They were literally like five miles away from where Jesus was born and none of them went. And so the vision of the religious leaders and the vision of God were in conflict. They were not on the same page. God's vision has always been for the world to worship him. Not just for a small little portion, but for the world to worship him. Look at Romans 15, where Paul makes it clear, using a lot of Old Testament uh, quotations as well. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol you. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come even. He who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. That's, that's you and I, Gentiles. The reason that we're hoping is, is because of this. There's three times here where, where Paul's saying, and again, here's another example. And again, here's another example all the nations, all the nations, all the nations worshiping God. And so missionaries for centuries have been going out and have been proclaiming that message. And I don't know if you read uh, missionary biographies. Um, we like to read them every once in a while. There's so many amazing stories of God working through his people to tell the story. And even yesterday I was reflecting again on, I don't know if you've heard of Paul Brandt. He grew up as a... Uh, missionary kid and his parents worked in India, Jesse and Evelyn Brandt, and they went into the hills of India almost a hundred years ago and proclaimed the message to the people there in India. And, and in their story is this um, experience that they had of the first number of years where they were in the mountains with the uh, Kolai Malai people and just the opposition they faced year after year after year, opposition and they helped to start businesses, and they helped to, them medically, and they were just desperate to see a church planted among these people. And the head priest of the uh, opposing religion was just against them and put all kinds of curses on them. And the worst thing happened in 100 years was the Spanish flu came through, right? It was 100 years ago, 1918, 1919. Spanish flu went all over the world. And it, it went into India, and so these missionaries were there, and they were about the only ones helping people as they got sick. Because as people would get sick, they would be ostracized by their family, they'd be rejected, they'd be put to the side. And so these missionaries were out there providing food for people, bringing it to their homes so that they could survive this pandemic that was going on around them. And they brought food to the priest and his wife, and they were the only ones from the whole village that would bring food to them. And it ended up that actually the, the priest and his wife died from the Spanish flu. But before they passed away, they actually believed in Christ. But the only reason they believed in Christ was the message, 
Yes, it was the gospel, but it was the example of Evelyn and Jesse showing the love of Christ to them. And they actually ended up uh, adopting the priest's uh, children, his two children. They became their own children. And so the work of gospel spread began in India. And interestingly, Evelyn, she ended up, uh, Jesse died in, you know, just like 10 years later. And she ended up staying there for 50 years, hiking the mountains of India, telling the story of the gospel, planting churches in these locations. This is what missionaries have been doing for centuries. And why is it that they've done that? First of all, God's mission for the world, but it's ultimately been the joy of the gospel, right? The joy that we experience as believers is the driving force. Remember that joy is the result of understanding the salvation that we have, the good things that God has given to us, like was just prayed here a few moments ago, right? That none of us deserve it, but that we've been given this gift of God's grace towards us. And so we go and tell that message. And so as a church, um, we have kind of set out, I mean, we're, we're small and just getting started, but we, with, with no shame, want to grow as a church because the growth that we want to see is actually people changed, people's lives changed, people understanding what they have in Christ, experiencing, entering into that joy. We want to practice church planting, and who knows even how that's going to happen, right? At this point, I have no idea. We've just kind of set it out there. Lord, would you allow us to be a part of this in some way so that your joy could be established in this region through churches planted. We also want to be a church that sends people out, that actually sees people, you know, they come into our church or they've been a part of us and they've, they've grown close to us. And then at some point they say, you know what? I think God is leading me to go somewhere. It might be somewhere right around us here. It might be somewhere around the world. And we, with, with heavy hearts, because we've grown to love these people, but with a, with a foundation of joy, send them out because of God's good joy that people need to experience. And so this experience of giving is a part of it. So when we see what the wise men did, you know, we see there in verse 11 that they fell down, they worshiped Jesus, and then they opened their treasures, right? They gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they entered into this with joy because they discovered who Christ was. They actually worshipped him and they gave easily. Now, Christmas is coming, right? Christmas is coming soon, and, and I'm still at that stage where I've got kids at home and Liz is at home, and it's so good to see them opening gifts and in, enjoying the gifts that were bought. And, and in the moment when the gifts are being opened, I'm not sitting there thinking, yeah, that gift, that was, you know, that was a three-hour shift there that I put in, put in a lot of, that, that was actually a couple of meetings that were really difficult, and I might have even got a couple of gray hairs from that one. That's not what's going through my mind in the moment, right? In the moment, you're just, you're loving the fact that people are entering into the joy, even though it came at a cost of giving. And so when we think of the joy around us, we think of what Christ has done for us, Yes, it comes with a cost. Yes, it cost them these expensive gifts, but it was for joy that they did it because they had found their Savior. I think it's best summed up in the song, the song that we know well from Christmas, Joy to the World. And, and listen to the lyrics here as I read the poetry behind it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. 
Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and flocks, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the joy that is only found in you. Lord, we can experience joy and happiness here um, because of our experiences, because of the things that we get here on the planet. And, and that's good, Lord. But this is a, a joy that is everlasting, and it's a joy that's connected to the gift of your Son. And so, Lord, we thank you for the salvation that we enjoy. We thank you for the time to remember his arrival. And Father, we do look forward to our eternal joy in your presence when you come for your second coming. And we pray, Lord, that that would be soon. Uh, we pray this in your son's name. Amen.